HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by GreatBrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit GreatBrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 in the Good Beer Seal. It's December 18th, 2012. It's almost Christmas. And I'm here doing a pre-record with Tony McGee from Lagunitas. And Mark, what's your last name, Mark? Mark Slukic. Mark Slukic, the Lagunitas rep. So we're going to talk about beer here on Beer Sessions Radio. And uh, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio. I'm joined by by the co-founder and warlord of one of the fastest-growing craft breweries in America. He really makes it all the way out to New York, so I'm happy to welcome, again, Tony McGee of Lagunitas Brewing to the Heritage Radio Network studio. Tony, welcome to the show. All right. Good to be here, man. It's cool. You know what? Your good buddy, Dave Broder from uh, Blind Tiger, yeah. told me a lot about you, and uh, I've got a couple of secret questions for you, because I'm going to try to push your button today. But, can, can, um, can I demur if I need to? Whatever you need to do. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Lagunitas, it's, it's, seems to me it's one of those brands that has a, a great uh, national footprint. People know it. They love it. You've got some great reps like Mark and Trevor who support the arts, and uh, you guys are growing. And um, w- Tell me the culture of Lagunitas, and, and, and what was it that got you started in the first place? Oh, man. Big all, questions, all, but yeah. it's your <laughs> it's show. A, it was a whole series of poor decisions, one piled on the other. Uh, the truth of the matter is, when, the brewery, when I founded the brewery back in 93, it was kind of one of those uh, bottom-of-the-barrel moments. Uh, you know, it's like I was in a different industry before selling commercial printing, and, and it was grinding quickly to a halt following the Gulf War and some of the other messes in the world. And uh, uh, I was just uh, I was 18 months married. Pretty sure I wouldn't be married even another day or two, and that was happily worked itself out. But uh, today my wife uh, runs the plant and does all the logistics, but... Uh, but that, that on top of all of a sudden owing about $50,000 in state and federal income tax and all kinds of stuff was going wrong. And I just thought, shit, you know, okay, there's nowhere to go but up from here. What would I like to do? <clears throat> then about Christmas time, my little brother gives me a home brewing kit in, 90, in uh, Christmas of, of, uh, of 92, 1992, and uh, brewed it in February. And that was, uh, that's it. I'm in. It was more of a seizure, I think, than it was uh, the fulfillment of a dream. I'm like, I'm, I'm, by December that year, the brewery was open. 
So, so you, li- you like beer a lot. I, you know, I barely liked beer at all. Uh, you can hardly call me a beer geek. It's funny, you know. I mean, I grew up, growing up in Chicago as I did, you know, what, are you going to drink old Milwaukee and old style? And you're going to, yeah, cheers. We're toasting. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there was just no beer to be drunk. I remember having had an anchor steam in a bar in Evanston once back, probably in about 1983, and thinking it was something of a revelation. And I guess that stuck with me. Uh, but I just we, we started drinking at a place called the Marin Brewing Company, you know, and I'm looking back at the stainless steel tanks behind the window and thinking they look pretty freaking sexy and gear is sexy. And so when I brewed that homebrew batch, I'm like, oh, look, you know, I can do this. And I put together about $30,000 out of the bank account without asking what I thought would be my future ex-wife and, uh, <laughs> and started buying buy, buy equipment. I bought a whole frickin' brew house for five grand from uh, it was supposed to have been shipped to Russia and somebody canceled an order. And I was in business uh, by, you know, brewed in February. Opened the brewery in December, and then by uh, or by, by uh, yeah by December, then by um, December of the next year, we had had to move the place because we killed a septic system, and uh, it was either like uh, you know leave the whole business with my tail between my legs and be embarrassed, or just you know move the plant to Petaluma and go deeper into debt, and that was the beginning of uh, thirteen years of being chased down the street by wild dogs. I mean, just <laughs> trying to stay ahead of uh, bankruptcy and uh, disillusionment and. Uh, you know. So why did you move to Petaluma? Well, I said we, we killed a septic system in this little tiny town out in West Marin where I lived. Um, I lived in the town of Lagunitas, which is a little town. It's a wide spot in the road. There's a sign. One side says, Welcome to Lagunitas. The other side says, Thanks for visiting. And uh, I, I lived, just lived up the hill off the main road and uh, I put the put the brewery in this little building right next door. And, and uh, we were there for about eight months. And one day the septic system looked up through the drain and said, Leave, boys. And, you know, we just we, we took it at its word. And the county got intervened. Actually, the truth is that the septic, one time running off a mash, the the groundwater got kind of warm, and so it took a long time. Or running off the uh, the wort from the kettle going to the fermenter, the groundwater was a little warm, and so it, it took a long time to run it off. And in other words, a lot of water, and we filled up the septic tanks, and it flooded this little cabin that was immediately below the brewery. And their toilets came up through the floor, and the the county came to see that, and they came to see us, and it was time to go <laughs> I think if I had to pull a moral from the whole story uh, if you guys are still looking to do some last uh, second Christmas shopping get a homebrew kit you never know what it'll turn into right yeah, that's, right. that's true well hey to take a side digression uh, we're drinking Lagunitas IPA which is on tap out here at Roberta's in Bushwick where we're recording uh, what's the story of, of Lagunitas IPA it, when did that become one of your your, your beers it, the, the story is um, it's pretty pretty uh, pretty linear First beer we made was a pale. I mean, when we first started off doing private label beers, and that was in West Marin, and and they didn't have our name on it. Lagunitas didn't have its own label. There was no plan ever to do that. I was going to be a cabinet shop making beers one at a time, and I was going to be delivering them to these accounts that would have their own name on it. Where Lagunitas is, it's a real tourist intensive area, so the bars wanted to have their own identities and stuff. It's cool. And uh, all the people that ever drank were from out of town. They were visiting, you know, from you know Dusseldorf and Fort Lauderdale and beyond. And so. Uh, but when we had to move to Petaluma, I realized we had to have our own label. And so I thought, well, what can I make? And I thought we could make a pale ale because outside of Sierra Nevada, nobody else in California made one. And I thought, well, there's people drinking pale ales. I could probably make a living doing this for a time if we had to. So we made a pale ale. We made a stout. And uh, the pale ale had the dog on it. The stout was Bugtown Stout. And it had a little roach on it. And uh, so, But what we realized pretty quickly was that you know Sierra Nevada was so, such a profoundly you know loved, beloved brand that we selling a pale ale against them was just unflattering to us and it probably wasn't even really that productive and it didn't feel 
good. So I thought, well, you know, you always want to be selling up, always be selling up. And I thought to myself back in, you know, late 94, well, what's, what's up, you know, from, a, from an IPA? And you start looking around, and nobody back then on the West Coast, uh, with exception of Bridgeport Brewing up north, and you know, Anderson Valley made a nice IPA, but nobody had one as a flagship with the exception of Bridgeport. So I thought, well, there's a, some open field running. We can do this. And so we made this beer, and it is now largely as it was then, without any changes. The beer was, we did it as a seasonal to commemorate our 100th brew, and it immediately became a permanent package, and uh, quickly we moved our business to orient around that as our future. And I had the feeling that 10, 15 years out, that IPAs would be what the whole industry would be about. And it's funny, because I thought, well, this is good, so if we get a head start on it, you know, we could take a shortcut, and maybe we'll, you know, have a have a storefront that we can talk to people from if we do it now and we did and now it is as that way i wish it wasn't quite so crowded but you know it's great having a lot of peers and it's cool to have been right and i think it's all worked out good we make a lot of other beers as well you know but those beers are all kind of the pilot light under the ipa that's how we look at it you know it kind of keeps the ipa vital by making the maximus and little something sound and all the seasonals the hairy eyeball and the brown sugar and all the rest of it so that's the creative juices that keep the ipa flowing all right. It's, you've uh, had some controversial uh, labels as well. Well, some kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, like uh, the Censordale, you know, originally called that the Chronic and uh, sent, that, sent, sent that label off. Uh, this is not too long after 9-11, and uh, the ATF was like, uh, I, their ATF at the time, they were, they, were, they were scanning everything that came in because they expected there to be anthrax in it. And we'd get, so we'd get our approvals back, and the paper would be so irradiated that everything that was in the envelope was that the paper was yellow and coming apart. I mean, that, like, the paranoia was a 1,000 miles deep, but it also would take them months to respond. And uh, we submitted the label with the chronic on it. And, you know, chronic means a lot of things but you know in our world it was starting to mean like the best of anything it was like a new skateboard mood or a move or an album or you know it was a cool new movie that was out and because it started off as you know the idea was uh, you know it was the, be- the best possible weed but then things move out it's like you know one time it was like oh yeah man that's good shit you know now it's like oh that's the shit it's, it could be anything it moves out in the poppy culture well so so we sent this label in and bathed the beer and sold it and it did well and people thought the name was fun and and then I say, I'm not getting a, uh, a rejection from the from the uh, ATF. And I call the guy. I'm like, dude, you know. He said, oh, I looked it up in the National Institute of Health database, and uh, actually on the East Coast, out this way, it meant strong pot mixed with crack. And I was like, oh, I'm with you. Okay, we don't want to promote that either. So, but I didn't like the censorship thing, so I took the word censored and put that over it and sent it back in more to thumb my nose at the guy, and instead he approved it. <laughs> I was like, all right. It's good to know how things work. But know? that's a good beer. So it's, it's a censor. That's the copper ale, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, how did you? Why did you decide to make that style separate from the story of the label? Ah, it was just uh, you know everyone was making an amber ale, and I just wanted to make an, an ale that had like a hoppy note to it, and was a little bit of a, a little bit of color and kind of a little richness on the caramel side. But you know you don't want to call it amber. I mean you don't want to call it a red ale. Cause, but copper ale is like we felt like that. Nobody did that then. It was like okay, it's copper, you know, because that was kind of the color too. It was like you know. Like polished copper, so we're like, okay, we're pretty literal, you know. If I made a beer and it was blue, we probably just call it blue, you know. I don't know. <laughs> it seemed easy. Well, Mark, what's it like being a rep and and you're the East Coast rep now or the New York State rep? No, it's covered New York State, Jimmy. New York State, and how do people respond to logging us? Uh, really great. It's a kind of a funny story. When I uh, started about three years ago. Um, uh, not many people out here could pronounce the name of the brewery, let alone you know knew what it was or where we were from. 
But, uh, you know, nowadays, man, it's, uh, you know, really kind of penetrated the culture in a big way. And uh, it's cool to see and cool to see that we have so many fans that dig the beer, uh, you know, more, more so than anything. And uh, kind of just happened organically for us out here. It's, uh, it's been a cool story. Yeah, and, you, and you've also developed, and we'll, we'll go back, we have a lot more to talk about with you, but um, you really have a great group of, of sales staff out here. You know, there's oh. Trevor, there's Mark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how do you, this is like the culture of Lagunitas, you know. Yeah. How, how does, is it all about you and, and, and your buddies, or how do you develop this this great team you have? You know, Ron Lindenbush and I were kind of sort of the foundations of it. You know, Ron's extraordinarily gregarious. I mean, you know, he just loves being with people and loves telling the stories and and he's a, a great speaker. And, you know, I'm sort of more like the ghost in the machine back at the brewery. And I, 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 for the longest time, I, I wrote all the recipes. And just recently, I've sort of uh, allowed Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Marshall, my head brewer, to begin doing more of those. I mean, he wrote the Hop Stupid recipe. He wrote the daytime recipe and a little something, something. So he's got his own voice. He understands these new hops. But anyway, the point is is that I, 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 for the large part, I still um, uh, art direct those recipes. So I'm kind of the point source for a lot of the brand. I design the labels right there on my Mac in my office. You know, I write the copy and do all that stuff. And and Ron was able to kind of take this and make it into a personality in the world. And and I think that when you, you know, if you're doing something that's authentic enough, people see their reflection in it. And I mean, I hope Mark feels that way, you know, and I think that some of the other reps who've come to us, including some of the management that has come to me over the, I mean, I got Dartmouth MBAs. I signed their paycheck. I'm a music school dropout. You know, it's, it's kind of. A, <laughs> well, that's it. So you're a music school dropout. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dropout. I mean, no, All right. you think you could. So you're get, not you just get, a business guy. You got a little bit of creativity. Oh, yeah. Well, it comes through. It, it, yeah. So what did you study? What, what was your original? You Composition. Know? Oh yeah, yeah, and you know the funny thing is, is that running a brewery is just like composition. But but hang on, the thing is, is that when you get a cool thing going, if it's authentic, people see the reflection in it and they come, they gravitate towards it. You become like a little black hole for people who have you know interesting points of view. They're like, I could, I understand these people. I think I bet they'll understand me too. And next thing you know, you end up with a really. A, a cool crew you're not hiring uh you're not looking for hired guns that are just going to walk up and down the street and pass out business cards and talk to bar owners they're going to go in there they're going to be themselves and their self is just a lot like you and you know it's a authenticity is a word that gets thrown around in our industry like, like but it's like it's i'm not sure what authenticity even means except that the word author is embedded in it and if you are the author of your own story then then you're authentic you know, if you're just parroting something back that you've seen before, you saw on TV, or you're, you know, then you're you're something else, you know. So we so we have a lot of very authentic folk around the brand. That's a that's a that's a great joy. I mean, because it's critical to, to 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 be able to put tell your story. That's what beer is. Beer is telling a story. So like I said, composition is a lot like music. There's a there's a story to be told. And, and if I'm writing um. You know, thirty-second TV commercial music, or if, or if you're writing a you know symphony that's going to be twenty-five minutes long, you know, it's, a brand is a twenty-year-long symphony. It, you know, there's themes, there's restatement of the theme, there's developments, there's introduction of new themes, or you bring the old theme back in a new key. You know, you you bring it back in a different meter, and and there's you know development. And the whole thing eventually coagulates, and you, you end up with all these themes in one place. That's a brand, and we just tell the story long and slow over time, and and I treat the brand in that same way like it's music so i think that there's a lot and on top of that you know it's like a, if you sit down and write a piece of music you write out all those little dots on those little lined pages and, and then you hand it to a bunch of very skilled artisans 
and they reproduce it back to you and in doing so kind of inject their own self into it you know their own particular worldview their own set of skills you know their own deficiencies as well as the things they excel at well when i hand i write a recipe and i hand it off to my brewers the same process occurs and and you hear it back and if you have really fabulous musicians music you hear coming back to you is better than what you thought you wrote down and so it's so it is the same with with uh, the recipes for the beer so. so you're saying we should fund music education oh, fuck, in yeah. america you know i don't know anything about business except what i've learned and everything i need to know in life i learned uh in music you betcha and it's all there you know uh, music's a fabulous thing it's it's a language with no words i mean you know how, how, how profound can a thing possibly be you know you don't even need the the burden of of meanings or memes behind meanings it's it's just it's just communication that's awesome all right we're here with uh tony mcgee from lagunitas we'll be back in a few minutes on beard sessions radio right now just take a breather and you're listening to as bad as it gets by the ron chance on heritage radio network.org Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio at the Heritage Radio Network. It's our pre-Christmas episode, uh, pre-recording for December 18th, 2012. Um, we're just having pizza from Roberta's. We're having the margarita. And um, we're talking with uh, Tony McGee, the founder owner of uh, Lagunitas. All right. Good pizza. That's the sound effect. Mark, what beer are we drinking? We, oh. we, we're drinking something else. We're drinking a Christmas beer. Yeah, we, we just cracked open an uh, Evil Twin before, during, and after Christmas beer. It's the first time having this one, actually. So, and you guys have, have uh, some Christmas beers out from Lagunitas, too. What, what, what do you have this year, Mark? Well, this year, uh, well, uh, back in October, uh, we released Brown Sugar for the first time in a couple of years. And, unfortunately, we weren't able to do it last year due to some uh, production restraints. Uh, but came back in full force. And, you know, we're tapping it all over the place in New York City, everywhere else across the country, uh, coming back in bottles as well. And following the brown sugar, we're going to have the uh, the glorious return of uh, Lagunitas Sucks Holiday Ale, uh, which uh, Tony, I'm sure, can tell you a little bit more. I about. love that name. I've never had it. <laughs> Lagunitas Sucks. Well, well yeah. Last year, because of uh, all sorts of crazy capacity constraints we've experienced over the last eight months, they're all resolved now. We... Uh, we realized we just couldn't make the brown sugar. It's a brew house hog. We make, you know, the brew house was eighty barrels, but we couldn't make more than fifty barrels of it at a pop, and and it got to do a longer boil, and then it spends more time in the fermenters, and so it was like it made our brewery much smaller at a time when we actually needed it to be bigger. So we decided rather than allocate it or do any of that usual kind of stuff, the craft brewers feel like they have to do. I, I said. Fuck it, we're not, we're not we're not making this beer. Can I say that on the air? Is that all right, it's a podcast. I think you right? just did. Okay, yeah, okay, podcast. I love them. But anyway, so we said, screw it. We're not going. We're not going to make even make it. Let's just put it aside. And then, and I thought to myself, people are going to be upset. I mean, some number of people are very passionate about the beers. They expect to show up for seasonals. And 
the brown sugar, I mean, you know, love it or hate it, it, it has a really interesting, you know, profile. It's unusual in the year, and so people had a following. And so I was like, oh, people are going to be mad at us. And all of a sudden, it just appeared in my mind while we were sitting in this little meeting that it's like, I've been driving into work for the last 15 years, and there's a local band in our area called Primus. Play all over the world, of course, but they're, they're, they're sort of housed up by us. And I was following behind this car so many days driving into the brewery uh, with a bumper sticker that said, Primus sucks. And that was the band's bumper sticker and i thought man that takes such balls to just say that and i, I always wanted to say it i was afraid it would catch on and people go oh well, i can use it does kind of suck but with the with not doing the brown sugar i was like this is our moment when we could actually say well, we suck we you know we, we we this whole thing blows you know we we hope just for a quick and merciful end to everything and you know there's no joy in our our, our hearts this holiday but we decided we'd make a beer that would also just like you know toast people's expectations about what a happy beer might be and we had all these uh, some experimental varieties and other things and uh, a couple special malts that we brought in that were only uh, in limited quantities and we made the sucks and every and it, and it just it just blew up it was it, people dug it and i think people like the, the the you know the lagunina sucks and us putting it on a label ourselves and and i took it away from everyone so nobody could be mad at us you know so, so with all the stories of uh, other breweries expanding you know breweries going from the west coast to the east coast yeah, yeah. um and you guys are going to be opening uh, what are you going to open in chicago you're also expanding as well aren't you oh yeah 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 putting in a in chicago there's a um an old steel fabrication plant not not a pouring you know molten steel but but making i-beams and it closed down in 97 and uh there's four buildings there that are 300,000 square feet apiece with like 50 foot ceilings and the this guy was turning a, a crazy greek billionaire guy 75 year old chain smoker with more energy than than me uh he uh, he, he uh, uh had to was turning it into a movie, set of movie sound stages and they they do that kelsey Grammer thing uh boss there that showtime special as well as transformers and other movies so it's a real working thing but there's one building on his site was too close to the railroad tracks and um, uh, but it had 57 foot ceilings, you know, and 100 foot open spans. It would be like putting a brewery in that building. Would be like putting a brewery in a field, you know. There's really no constraints there anymore. And and uh, so that that so I rented that back last March, and we've been working. All the permits actually are going into the city of Chicago this week, and um, the licensing's all in process, and everything goes right. Uh, we'll have a tap room open in that space in March. The brewing equipment shows up in July, and we'll be commissioned to making beer by October. And the real thing about it is, is that it's. We're taking all this diesel out of the beer. For 2013. Yes, 2013, yeah. 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 Uh, we're taking all this diesel out of the beer. If you drink a beer of ours... It's like the- cheers to the new year, guys. It's, it's almost Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cheers to 2013. You can yeah. check out Lagunitas in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So so it'll be happening. It'll be happening by then. It's going to be exciting. And and, and it's uh, uh, the, the real thing, the, the coolest part about it is that... Right now, we spend a ton of money on freight shipping beer from Petaluma to Denver and points east. Well, you know, it's like by putting the brewery in Chicago, my freight bill will go through the floor. And instead, I can spend that money on, on bank debt. And so for the brewery, it, it'll really cost us nothing to build the brewery there in Chicago. Like nothing. It's the weirdest little calculation, you know. So so you're also thus increasing capacity, too. Yeah. Yeah. The brewery in Chicago will be identical equipment to uh, the, the Petaluma plant. So at that point... When the Chicago Brewery goes up, well, actually, it was originally going to be one size, but it's a little bit bigger now, uh, and we'll be uh, we'll be at about a million four in capacity. But that that's to grow into over yeah. over years, you know. So, and you're okay with that? You think that's that's a good move for you guys? Oh yeah, each of the plants will be operating at two hundred thousand barrels on the first day. So I mean, those are they're big breweries by themselves, and they're profitable. 
It's good. And in Chicago, we're going to have a direct relationship with the whole damn Midwest. It's going to be cool, you know. And the beer that we ship to New York, you know, will be fresher. The beer that we ship, ship to Minnesota, Minneapolis, you know, there's no summer. Even refrigerated travel isn't as good as, like, drinking it close to the brewery. So, and, you know, the thing is, I was driving home uh, after the day that I finally, I said, we're doing this at the the plant. And it it occurred to me that down the street from us in a town called Fairfield is a three million barrel Budweiser plant. Well, there are 100 million barrels. One plant's only three million barrels. They're already doing this. You know, this is, this is how beer is supposed to be done. This isn't. You know, the idea that craft breweries had to come from one certain place is just kind of antiquated. It's it's a nice idea, but the truth is, you want to drink fresh beer made near where you are. So, so what, the beer we're drinking, the Evil Twin, that's a whole other thing. It's kind of yeah. like a contract brewing or, or a gypsy brewing. Gypsy, yeah, it's cool. What do you think about those guys? you think that's cool? I mean, yeah. first of all, this beer, the Evil Twin, yeah. before, during, after Christmas. Let's have a little more of that. I'm drinking a lot more than you guys. <laughs> uh, Tony, you're, you're doing a great job talking, and you didn't even finish your IPA. I am. That's right. So what do you think of this beer, Tony? Oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. That's cool. Which brewery do they make it at? Do you know which plant? No? Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's I do not know. I mean, he makes some He makes some in, in Denmark, yeah. and I know he's living in Williamsburg now, and he's probably going to be collaborating over here, too. <laughs> Gypsy Brewing's fascinating, you know? We, 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 it's, you know? Of course, it's different from contract brewing. Contract brewing's, you know, where you make the decision that you want to be a marketing company and have a label... And, and and you know have somebody else um, basically take the risk of operating a plant, uh, borrowing to build it. You know it's like you eliminate a lot of your risk and you sort of, you know, you offshore it into another business. And and for my own reasons, it's like I could never have done that. It's like the risk is supposed to be your own, and and that's that's the risk and, and the responsibility of the risk, not only to bank or to landlord, but to all of your employees who work there. Um, and the career that they're making with you, you know, that's that that's part of uh, of uh, of, the, of the the soul of being a, a company, let alone being a brewery, you know. And and I would want to make sure that that I was as close as I could be to that risk, as well as the the joy of watching it actually flower as possible. But um, so there's some some breweries who've done well with, with contract brewing, and so it's like the, these are just personal decisions. They got it's not just this judgment about anybody else. Gypsy brewing, though, is fascinating just because it's such a pirate thing to do, you know? It's not as if you're even just making it all at one brewery. You're kind of, you know, the brewer's experiencing people's plants, and it's like visiting foreign countries when you go to a different brewery, you know? That's a, so that's, this is a, it's a cool thing to be doing, I guess. You know? It just, seems like a, it, it'd be a great way to travel. It sure does, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you guys do any collaborations? Or do you have any other brewers come in and make beer at Lagunitas? No, no, no. You know, we've had lots of opportunities to do uh, contract brewing, uh, and we've always just declined it. Even when I could have used the money, definitely used the money, I was like, no, we have to focus on what we're doing, and we have to become good enough of what we're doing to support ourselves and to pay our own bills. And Because if we take a shortcut and focus in a different direction, it'll take our eye off the goal, which is to make the best beer we know how to make, to present it in the most fascinating way we can, and to learn about ourselves in the course of doing it, period. It's as simple as that, you know. So we always said no, even when it was would have been useful. So you've been able to grow with your own staff. Like with Ron, uh, we had Ron on the show a couple of times, Ron, Ron Lindenbush. He's been a great uh, advocate for you guys. What is his official title? A beer weasel. Beer weasel. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. That's right, yeah. There's never been anything else, actually. I mean, you could call him a, you know, chief marketing officer. You could call him, you know, 
uh, you know, marketing director. But the truth is, he's just a beer weasel. So, and, he, and he's always like that. I called him that when we first first did business cards, maybe back in 96 or 7, you know. Like, I, I just did them on my computer and we sent them off to Kinko's, you know. And I, I just put it on put it on there just to crack them up. And That's it, funny because, you know, I've asked Ron before, you know, where, where it came from. And he's like, you know, honestly, man, I can't remember. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> it, it was like it was always just meant to be. It was someone, he, he was just waiting for someone to call him that and then he'd be that. So guys like Mark and Trevor, what, what are their names? What are their job descriptions? Yeah, my, my, my official title, I think, of my cards is Living the Dream, which is uh, pretty pretty damn accurate, I think. I've had, I don't know if you ever knew Pat Mace, one of our sales guys, his was corned beef and bail bonds, you know? My, my, I think my all-time favorite is uh, Jim Jacobs, the uh, the pony ride attendant. Pony ride attendant. <laughs> my favorite of all was fucking know-it-all. That was... Uh, that was and what, was that guys. Guys, what was his job? Oh, he was a salesman. Every, oh, yeah. Yeah, but all you had to do is ask him, and he'd tell you, you know? He, so he knew it all. <laughs> and, and, and tell us more about the Petaluma. I mean, you guys are logging into this in, in Petaluma. I've never been to Petaluma. Uh, is it in Marin County or Sonoma County? So it's at the ass end of Sonoma County. So when, when all those all people up there tasting wines and stuff are heading back south on Highway 101, they get pooped out right at the brewery. So we pick them up and we cleanse their palates with some hops and they stop by for tours. And it's a beautiful part of the world, though. Absolutely gorgeous there. So. And, and I know there's some attractions. There's like the the beer train. You've got some cool. I mean, it's worth a trip to Petaluma to go to go to your brewery. I've never been. Yeah. So what what are some of the highlights of visiting Lagunitas? Well, you know, for like a consumer. Well, it, first of all, it's it's just the landscape is is beyond beautiful. I mean, the 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 the, the scene of of northern Marin County and western Marin County out towards the coast and Sonoma County and then Napa over to the other side is just. It's just pastoral. Like if you you take pictures and you show people, they're like, "Oh, that's one of those paintings you buy at the flea market," you know. But it's just that picturesque. And but then you know you get there. Gosh, there's distilleries. You know, there's there's wineries. You know, more than you can count. Um, there's you know there's ourselves. There's um, there's Dempsey's Brewing. There's now a couple uh, micro uh, nano breweries in Petaluma. You know, Hen House and uh, uh, 101 North. And there's Russian River right up the street from us. And there's a uh, um, you know, Bear Republic further up the road than that. Mendocino, you keep going, you get to North Coast Brewing and Anderson Valley. I mean, it's you know, it's just an adult playground. I mean, but the, and, and the the distilleries are cool things all by themselves. You know, everything from brandy to people making wine and soju and stuff, and so it's a spectacular place to hang. Just wonderful. So. Wow! And what, so let's say spring's coming up, spring of two thousand thirteen. Yeah, I want to visit your area. Do you have any festivals coming up, or uh, any special? You know, yeah, I guess the next consumer event probably be the uh, beer circus. No, uh, yeah, well, beer circus comes about May. You know, I mean, it depends on how early you come. You know, there's there's a San Francisco Beer Week is a, just a monstrous set of you know kind of unusual events and stuff that go on, and, uh, and you know, it's almost the Bay Area is just a big adult playground, and, and it's such an incredible uh, tourist destination that people come from all over the world, and because of that, they're all coming from all over the world all the time, and there's always just so, more things to do than you can shake a stick at, you know. So, all right. Let's make a toast. We had some of the evil twin. Yeah, like the evil twin very much. Yeah, and uh, you know, talking about building building your company and and putting your yourself on the line to to have your own business. That's really inspiring. Um, Tell us about how how you're. uh, We're going to take a short break in a minute, Um, but when we come back, we'll talk more about how you how you built the company and how you've turned over the reins to to your brewer and some of the new beers he's made. Okay, we'll be right back on Beer Sessions Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's almost Christmas. It's December 18th, 2012. And I give our thanks to GreatBrewers.com, our sponsor, and to the Good Beer Seal and Association of 41 New York City uh, Good Beer Bars, uh, GoodBeerSeal.com. All right, here we are with Tony McGee, founder and owner of Lagunitas, and uh, Mark, who's the New York area rep. Uh, we're drinking... Uh, some cool beers. We we talked a lot about Lagunitas, how it got started, and now we're drinking an unusual can beer, uh, Oscar Blues. It's like a, a wide mouth can bottle. Somebody brought me from Colorado. Actually, a collaboration with uh, Sun King Brewery. Interesting, and it's a hoppy brown ale. Yep, it's called the Deuce. Dropping the Deuce, and it's in a can. So, I'm supposed to ask you, uh, Tony, what do you think about cans for craft beer? Well, I, you know. I, th- I think a lot of be- people are making ca- beer in cans because it's it's an exciting thing. It, er, the, the the thing that uh, consumers really want from all of us brewers more than anything else is to is to fulfill their dreams, you know, to do things that they, they, they that they didn't even know they wanted us to do. And and with so many breweries I, in the United States and more coming online, everybody's looking for an opportunity. What find where they're open? Like I said, when we were making an IPA, nobody else made an IPA, so that was an easy choice. People are looking for open field running. And certainly cans create a difference because all the breweries that were there before were in bottles, right? So I, I think certainly with Dale's, I mean, it's, it's kind of been a brilliant thing for him. It's really helped them grow his company. It's made all these cool things happen. And, you know, his employees are better off. And they probably have better equipment and better benefits. I mean, so there's nothing nothing wrong about it with, with a brewery, any particular brewery doing cans. I think I upset Dale with, with a comment that I made about cans. But, you know, the funny thing about cans that most people don't quite get and, and uh, Dale doesn't necessarily do this, as far as I've ever read any of their stuff. But it's like as they talk about it being greener, uh, you know, aluminum is is about as as green as a fish riding a bicycle. You know, I mean it it just it just doesn't it isn't. And, and uh, aluminum once it's aluminum, I guess it's all right. You know, when you recycle aluminum, the from what I've read, um, about forty percent of the aluminum goes up the stack. So the recovery rate in the recycling process isn't all that high. But the, the actual fact of it is there's no mineral uh, that's mined on Earth called aluminum. And most people think that there is. And what aluminum is actually a refined product that comes from something else called bauxite. And bauxite, uh, if you look on a map of where the bauxite mines are in the world, you will notice that there is not one in North America. And there's a reason for that. This is, a, you know, a, this is a protected place in a lot of ways. And, and bauxite is mined and involves uh, enormous amounts of caustic to separate it, uh, sodium hydroxide, the same stuff we clean our tanks with, to, uh, to separate it from soil and such. And uh, bauxite then is, like, refined and, and put into these big sheets and a big electric current, enormous electric current, after first making it molten, is run through it in order to align, you know, all the molecules so that it becomes this, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, the metal that we know is aluminum. And so once it's aluminum, it's a great thing. But gosh, in the days before it's aluminum, and the only thing to know about all that is not that cans are bad, but that there are no panaceas, you know. Glass comes out of silica mines. Silica is essentially sand. Yes, there are big holes in the earth, but there's no, like, you know, sodium hydroxide. Like in Spain, I think it was in Spain, there was a, maybe it was in uh, 
one, one of the Slavic countries, there was a big spill where a dam broke, and it spilled all this caustic into a, this was just a couple years ago, it ran through this entire town, burned people's feet off as it ran towards the Danube. And by the time it got to the Danube, it was buffered out enough, and the caustic high pH was all neutralized. But, I mean, these aren't, these aren't, these aren't nothing is a thing without a price. And that's, the, that, so to talk about one thing being greener than another, the only thing greener than anything is homebrew. Where you drink it right out of your fermenter with a straw, you know that's that's green. And, and people want to do that. I'm all for them. You know, even if it means they buy less of our beer, that's all right too. But so so we'll be. And I said this in the, the last brewery in the country to can. Doesn't mean we'll never do it. But we'll pretty much be the last one. Do, do you but think the, the kegs is, draft the rate, is more green? You know, draft is fabulously green. Oh, those stainless steel kegs go around and around and around and around. But Ron Lindebush makes a joke. He goes, "Yeah, we can. They're fifteen fives and they're seven, and a, you know, seven and a half. Yeah, they're just big. You know, they're not single serve." I like draft beer. It's one reason I get out of the house and go to my bar every night is I really want to have draft beer. Yeah, and it's, I think it's definitely a different experience. It is, it is. But there's times when you want to drink at home. And what are you going to do? You have kegs in your house? Maybe you do some people do. Maybe yeah. you, do, you know. But but yeah, kegs are the most fabulous sort of recyclable thing. So what do you this. think of this beer? This this is the Deuce Oscar Blues. It's in a, it's in a weird shaped can. Yeah. It's a hoppy brown ale. With it's a not screw, bad, right? With a screw top. No yeah. less. That's definitely an interesting beer. It's, yeah. yeah. It's I tasty. Mean, you know, I think it's uh, definitely been a little bit of a trend lately. A lot of black IPAs and, you know, brown IPAs. They're, mm-hmm. they're starting to pop up left and right. You know, people are kind of pushing the limits. Yeah, but, but when, when something's a black IPA and a wheat IPA and a light IPA and what we call one a fractional IPA, after a while, are, are they even IPAs anymore? What, what, at some point, shouldn't that just kind of go away, you know? I mean, our beer bears no resemblance to an English India Pale Ale, you know, and so everything's drifted so far from the center. I think IPA is just now short for hoppy. But earlier, but, but I like Brew Dog Brewing up. They they made a beer called IPA is dead in Scotland. Uh, right? I, I love that. Yeah, it changed Watson. Well, a little Nietzsche. Uh... Yep, IPA is dead, and he wasn't wrong. But when you you said IPA was your first big big beer, yeah, that's what made it for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what made you feel like that had a future way back? When was it the nineties? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, people were drinking pale ales and loving them, and they were happy. I mean, there's no two ways about it. You know, nowadays, you know, maybe people don't think of RIPA or Sierra Nevada as the you know as robustly happy. But I'll tell you what, in 1995, it, you know, Sierra Nevada pale ale was one of the happiest beers anybody ever tasted, and so you know, palates have evolved. As ours was at the time the happiest IPA anyone had ever tasted, and I don't know if it was or it wasn't, but this was how people perceived it. And over time, you know. Now we're kind of mid ground, middle ground, and, and I think that's a great place to be because there's a friendly quality to our beer. We haven't really, we've added a tiny bit of like uh, Simcoe uh, to the beer only as frosting. You know what I mean? And, and I say tiny, it's like you know if, the, if there's I'm, I'm going to get this number wrong, but I think if there's like ten pounds per barrel of dry hopping. It's like a half a pound of a Simcoe, you know. But because you need to be part of the part of the current like spectrum of flavors but uh this is essentially the same beer on, on the alcohol and the malt base and and uh the essential bittering and stuff and so i thought it was the future because i could see how much people liked pale ales and i knew that if i sold up people would only like some number of people would only like an ipa a little bit better and that would be a world but when you think about what the top of the pile is you know look bud miller and coors and heineken and corona don't they all make pilsners you know i mean i guess some are vienna lager if you look at the, the mexican ones but with their pilsners, which was the top of the world spectrum as far as uh, uh, lager making went. Now, whether they were the world's best lagers anymore, who knows? You know, that's a matter of opinion. But 
Pilsner was the top of the tree, you know. So to get to get back to uh, hops, uh, you might want to talk about uh, uh, relationships with the hop farmers that we've been able to develop over the last few years and uh, right. our barley farmers. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a weird little thing, but but you know the the, the world of uh, so craft brewing is born into the world that existed before us, and the, the world that existed before us was built to supply Bud Miller and Coors, and domestically anyway, and and uh, you know Pabst and uh, the, whatever other large scale brew. But they but these guys used adjuncts in the malt, and they didn't use very much in the way of hops. In fact, a lot of them preferred extract because they were more generically flavored, so they weren't substal, subs, um, uh, susceptible to from year to year kind of flavor uh, differentiation. So then the beer changes when the hop change. We, we all expose ourselves to that. Well, you know. That made all of those inputs commodities. And the truth of the matter is, when it comes right down to a malting quality barley is not a fucking commodity. It, it, it's a highly specialized value-added product. And the farmers that grow malting quality barley, are it's a matter of great pride that they know how to do that. But yet, it got priced along with feed barley, which could have been anything. I mean, the crummiest stuff that you know that just uh, uh, only an animal's can eat. And so our, our goal in that, as is, was true for hops as well, was to decommodify those things was to recognize them as truly value-added products and try to separate the the old ways of buying that the big brewers would employ from the way we buy they would buy as commodities we would buy these as specialty products and we've been working hard and long with them we have barley farmers now up in alberta all up and down from north to south alberta feeding the raw plant and alex that are growing barley malt or sorry malting quality barley in the field from the day one of planting for us at a knowable price you know and so they don't do anything to to the the least bit to, to to hedge their bet against it becoming feed if it, something were to go wrong at harvest they know what what, what what's going to happen they know where it's going to go and they make the best malt that possible same thing for the farmer the hop farmers and the hop farmers it's a big change for them to to start thinking about their products as not commodities when they when a lot of most of the hops that are grown up in Yakima Washington are grown for alpha acids which means they get made into uh, extracts and then any brewery, just at, like we do at the Hop Stupid, you just pour it into the kettle. You know, it doesn't have any particular flavor. It's just really bitterness. You're buying pounds of alpha acid. But things like Simcoe and Citra and Amarillo and, and uh, you know, was a, a Galaxy is even now, you know, from abroad. I mean, you know, the, the, these are extraordinarily specialized products that require a lot of skill to grow. And uh, we, we want to pay more for them to encourage the farmers to do more of that. And the farmers are seeing us eye to eye. We haven't we haven't renewed a contract with a hop dealer in three or four years now, you know. So we're everything we're buying is coming directly from the farmers. And the farm you can almost feel them sigh a little bit of a relief when they know they're talking directly to their customer. They're not growing hops anymore. They're growing beer. You know, I mean, yeah. they feel like they're directly. They know what when they do it, who it's going to go to, what they're going to do with it, and and how it will be perceived. Well, that's inspiring. And even as you expand into Chicago, are you going to do the same thing? Oh yeah, yeah. Are I you mean, going to keep the same farms? Are you going to move to farms in the Midwest? Nope, same farms. You yeah. know, the, the the malt being made in Alex, Alberta, which is outside Calgary, it's almost equidistant from there to San Francisco as it is to Chicago. So. You know, we, nothing will change. You know, it's going to be great. And my hope is that, like with with brewers in the Chicago area, you know, there's a lot of smaller brewers there that we can begin to kind of maybe wrap them into some of these programs with us that they can benefit. And the farm hop farmers, the malt uh, barley growers, you know, that they can all sort of, uh, you know, begin to expand their exposure to craft brewing in a more enlightened way. Well, you have a great vision. I'm I'm really glad you came on. Um, going back to talking about how you know you, you grew your company. Um, 
you know, tell us about the handoff from from you t- to your current brewer now. What what you went through, you know. Um, when did your, your current brewer start working for you? How about that? Um, Jeremy started working with us uh, probably in uh, 2002, I think. You know, and he came in just as a kid right out of school, but he was a bright light right from the start. And he was just a staff brewer working in the cellar, working filtrations and doing stuff. But he was, you, know, you could just tell there was, uh, you know, he's a strong, strong thinker, very, very careful thinker. And I mean, I'd, I'd describe him as more of a jazz musician than than even uh, a brewer. You know, everything in his life is he, he approaches it with that sort of sense of open mindedness and a little bit of wonder and excitement. So it is that uh, that he was uh, he was he was writing the recipes, and when we poured it over from our thirty barrel brew house, which was extraordinarily manual, it's like most breweries, you know, dragging hoses around, opening valves and stuff, to the eighty barrel automated system. You know, I worked with Jeremy to make sure that he was the head brewer by that point, to make sure that he understood and that the manufacturer of the system, Rolex, understood that we wanted we didn't want the system to make beer. We wanted it to move the brewer to the highest level of decision-making so that they could be concerned about times and temperatures and flow rates and pounds and gallons, you know, and they can really watch the, the – they can mind the computer, you know, which is stupid. But, you know, ask, have, having a brewer stand there who has to run up and down the platform to dra- connect a hose here, then he knows five minutes later he has to be over there to op- close a valve. You know, it's he's no – he's not – it's not his intellect isn't engaged. He's – tired he's working to move make all the stuff happen so for so so we did that and in doing that i could just see jeremy knew exactly what we were doing he learned a lot about our recipes certainly you know because i was writing them for him and describing him how what we wanted to have done uh and how i wanted the beers to turn out and when it came time to particularly to write the hop stupid up until that point we really hadn't used a lot of simcoe's any any of these new varieties we we're old school centennial uh, Liberty, you know, Cascade, Willamette, and such. And I didn't know enough about the new hop flavors. I said, Jeremy, here, you're hip to these, you know, because younger guy, you know, I'm getting old as time goes by. And so it's like, here's what I want the beer to be, you know. This was the test case. I said, I want to do this, I want to do that. I want to have the, the residual gravity here. I want the alcohol here. I want the, the apparent bitterness to be like this beer, only a little bit. And he read my mind. And he, he the beer that I imagined, he created. And with that, I started feeling a lot of confidence in him. So I still art direct recipes. You know, I have an idea of what I think we, where, where, where the, you know, wh- whether we should go to the bridge or go to the next verse, you know, I, and I, I direct him that way. And, and uh, but he, he takes it and runs with it and makes it his own. And, but it's all sort of in the Lagunitas um, vocabulary of flavors at the same time. So it's cool. Well, that's awesome. That's a little insight into how you've grown your company. Yeah. Um, we're looking forward to seeing what happens in Chicago in 2013. Thanks. And it's really been great having you on. Um, just want to say, uh, again, thanks to Lagunitas. Thanks for coming on. Uh, New York City, uh, it's 2012 is coming to an end. Want to know the best places to ring in 2013? Go to com and check out our calendar to find out about craft beer events at 41 of the best beer bars in New York City. And New York City Craft Beer Week, you remember that? Uh, well, it's coming back. It's going to be New York City Beer Week in February 2013. Uh, many of the New York City breweries like Six Point, Brooklyn Brewery, Kelso, joined together and formed uh, the New York City Brewers Guild, and they will be bringing back 
Track, New York City Beer Week. Learn more about it at GooberSeal.com. I'd like to thank our sponsors at GreatBrewers.com have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. You can find Beer Sessions Radio on our Facebook fan page, Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. You can also follow us on Twitter at Beer underscore Sessions. Thanks to Tony and Mark from Lagunitas for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Jack Inslee and Brie O'Connor, and our engineer, Joe Galarraga. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.